That's kind of the big area of algorithmic bias that everybody's concerned about, that if we use biased data to train our machines, then we will perpetuate those biases and we will not realize the benefits that we have historically associated machines with. I've been thinking a lot about the trust we have in technology. We have allowed Alexa, Siri, Google, and Facebook to become part of our lives. These tech giants use this trust to access our data and give us a rich user experience. At the same time, they invade our privacy and take advantage of the data we provide to make a profit. This dilemma is at the heart of an idea called the privacy paradox. Our willingness to trust machines with our data to receive better experiences and the fear that our data could be exploited. And as we see more headlines about algorithmic bias and AI and machine learning, I started asking myself, how much trust is too much? So I sat down with my friend Sham Sundar, who runs the Media FX Research Lab at Penn State, and we had a good chat about it. So Sham, you and I have had some very interesting conversations, and you were telling me about all the work you're doing in AI. And I was thinking, over the last few years, the field has just gone crazy. There has been an explosion of studies and research on the social, ethical aspects of AI and trust, has it not? I think some of the breakthroughs in technology, they've all kind of come together. We now have the computing ability for quickly crunching big data and being able to make sense of it. We are able to train machines with lots of data. And so it's not just our field. AI in general has kind of exploded into being. So if my wife says, you know, kale has more iron than spinach, and I'm doubtful of that information. So I turn to Alexa and say, which has more iron content, uh, kale or spinach? And she would give the answer very specifically, or we might have disagreements about who acted in which movie and so forth. So one day I programmed Alexa to answer the following question. Alexa, who does the most work in this house? And then Alexa gives the answer saying, you know, Sham does the most work. And just to illustrate the point that this presence of a machine saying something is a very powerful kind of uh, force. And that's kind of how we are psychologically wired. So why are we so wired to trust machines? Well, I think historically, you know, machines have been kind of known to be accurate, right? ATMs, they almost never get it wrong. We trust ATMs because they give you the exact amount of cash. You don't have to count. They are programmed to be accurate. We think that they are efficient. They do not have memory problems like human beings, whereas machines, once you program a piece of information to them, they tend to be pretty reliable on that front. Also, they do not gossip behind our back. It'd be fun, though, to have a gossiping machine. They do gossip behind our back in a way. A key word there is interoperability, where machines have started talking with each other. You know, many times in my talks, I've played this hilarious ACLU video, envisioning what a future would be where a guy calls a pizza shop. Pizza Palace. Is this Mr. Kelly? Uh, yes. Thank you for calling again, sir. I share your national identification number as 610-204-9998-45-54610. Is that correct? Uh, yes. Thank you, Mr. Kelly. I see you live at 736 Montrose Corp, but you're calling from your cell phone. Are you at home? I'm just leaving work, but I'm... Oh, we can deliver to Bob's Auto Supply. No, I'm on my way home. How do you know all this stuff? We just got wired into the system, sir. Oh, well, 
I'd like to order a couple of your double meat special pizzas. Sure thing. There'll be a new $20 charge for those, sir. What do you mean? Sir, the system shows me that your medical records indicate that you have high blood pressure and extremely high cholesterol. The total is $67 even. $67? Well, that includes the delivery surcharge of $15 to cover the added risk to our driver of traveling through an orange zone. I live in an orange zone? Now you do. Looks like there was another robbery on Montrose yesterday. But I want double meat. Well, I'm sure you can afford the $67 then. You just bought those tickets to Hawaii. They weren't cheap, eh? Oh, but I see you checked out the budget beach bomb at the library last week. Hmm. I'll get the sprout subs. Good choice, sir. Gotta watch that waist if you're hitting the beach, eh? 42 inches. Wow. That's how much? Just between you and me, there's a $3 off coupon in this month's Total Men's Fitness magazine. Your wife Betty subscribes to that, right? Anyhow, clip that and it's $19.99 even. Whoa, looks like you maxed out on all your credit cards. Bring cash, okay? That's funny, but it's also nuts. It's a bit scary. She knew everything about him. How does that even happen? So there are all these other systems that are talking to the pizza shop system, which is you know, the healthcare system, the police system, and they're all kind of giving information to the pizza company so that it can calibrate the cost of the pizza for this customer. That is an illustration of how Indeed, machines do gossip. They've gotten to a point where now, unbeknownst to us, they are sharing information with each other. When we are online, you will suddenly see ads for products that you were talking about at home with your spouse. Or if you search for something on Amazon, suddenly you see ads for that populating around your screen when you're on Facebook or when you're on a Google search engine. Another thing that we think of machines as not being is as not being ideologically biased. We always thought machines do not have an agenda, although now, lately, we know that they can be biased. They can be ideological, too, and we don't suspect that of machines normally. So historically speaking, we have had very good reasons to trust machines, but increasingly some of that trust is you know, getting chipped away because of these new realizations in these new contexts like IoT and artificial intelligence. I read this newspaper report about Amazon, their project on screening applicants. Right. And of course, there was the gender bias. So what happened here? What was the intended effect and where did they land? So, you know, big companies like Amazon, they get hundreds of resumes every day, right? So they need some kind of efficient way of processing these resumes so that they select just the best candidates for, for the review. What they do is train these machines based on their own repository of resumes from the last, let's say, 10 years of successful candidates and unsuccessful candidates. So they feed all the resume material into the algorithm of these hundreds of people who applied, and then they have all the attributes of the people who got and who did not get the job. But the idea is maybe the human beings who used to sift these applications systematically preferred men over women mm -hmm. or mm -hmm. systematically preferred Caucasians over you know, minorities. And so those kinds of biases will be baked into their selection system. And if you then use that selection system as the training wheel, so to speak, for the algorithm, it's going to look at the gender data and then say probability of this person getting the job is going to be lower because this person is female, for example. A lot of the companies that employed these, including Amazon, claim that they have never really deployed them. 
because there are these fears that it would have gender bias and race bias and things like that. So machines need some data to seed the learning process. I mean, we know we live in an imperfect world. Where can we get this pure data? Well, yeah, that's the million dollar question. Getting good data is very hard. And in fact, even getting good fake data is very hard. We've been doing a project for the last few years on fake news detection. So we are trying to build algorithms that would automatically sift real news and fake news. And so we've been trying to train our algorithms with fake news of different kinds, you know, native advertisements, satire, propaganda, things that would be considered not quite straight news. And as it turns out, it's actually quite hard to find solid fake stories. There is always a little bit of good mixed in with the bad, and there's like a lot of gray between the black and white. So to train the machine accurately is quite challenging. There are a lot of other factors that complicate matters When we train these algorithms, there's this famous black box problem that we know of with algorithms. But if you have trust in data, if you know that there's a track record, then you have a reasonable chance that it's going to behave in a way that will be desirable. And there is also mechanisms to go back and review and audit what the machine learning algorithm is showing us. And over time, you can make some course corrections to... Right, right. And it's an iterative process, right? So it kind of keeps improving itself with AI technologies. We are constantly teaching our machines how to be better by, you know, showing where they went wrong. So if it keeps improving itself, does it mean machines have some sort of agency? Sure, yeah. Agency as a concept has always been associated with humans. A person as having more or less agency if they have more voice or more control. So I come from a communication background. In all the models of communication, the source is kind of the most sacred, in fact, the starting point of communication. And so to the extent a person has the ability to be a sender or source, they are considered to have agency. And so when you think about agents in your real life, like real estate agents or travel agents, they are the gatekeepers of information. They have enormous amount of information at their disposal but they take all kinds of very important decisions about exactly what should be delivered to you, what should be held back, what is appropriate. So when you think about it, this business is full of power. Historically, a few journalists and a few editors, the so-called journalistic elites in a newsroom had access to the mass media channels, and they were the ones who had agency. They were the ones who could spread information to the masses. And now you and I use these social media vehicles and do the exact same thing, which is broadcast to millions of people all over the world. Now, as it turns out, machines have also acquired that ability. And so AI or machines in general can now have tremendous agency. So when you go to Netflix, for example, you get recommendations. And so the AI engine behind it knows your viewing patterns and personalizes the selection for you from among hundreds of movies. And so what this does is it actually brings machine agency, a non-living entity having agency, face-to-face with human agency. So it's my will to choose a movie to watch against Netflix's recommendation of what you should watch, right? And it seems so much more persuasive when it comes from the machine, not just because it's a machine, because it has infinite memory in a way that it puts it together and gives you the most appropriate recommendation that you cannot resist. That seems to be the perfect combination of all the movies you've liked in the past, 
right? It's not necessarily a bad thing, but it can be a bad thing if it ends up invading your privacy, it stalks you uh, from site to site and things like that, which it needs to do very often in order to give you the best recommendation. So this is where we have this negotiation of agency that you were referring to in your question. Right. So the more power we surrender to algorithms and, uh, you know, AI, at what point does the machine take over? And, you know, it becomes one of those Black Mirror episodes (laughs) in real life. Right, right. It'll happen most likely in a way that we don't even realize, right? Just the other day, somebody asked me, how well did you sleep last night? And my first instinct was to go to my smartwatch to check how well I slept. (laughs) Uh, But that person's question was just, you know, was an affective. They wanted my, you know, kind of my, my take on it. But my instinct was to look at my smartwatch because that gives me the exact readout of how much REM sleep I got and how much deep sleep I got. And I'm so used to it that I cannot think of even commenting on my sleep quality now without looking at that metric. And then more recently, I just started wearing a patch for continuous glucose monitoring. So you don't have to finger prick to find out what what your blood sugar is. So I'm wearing that now. Who knows? Pretty soon, you know, people will be calling me cyborg. So I have all these things attached to me, smartwatch and this uh, glucose monitor and things like that. So I think it's in this kind of a subtle way, one by one, we become so enmeshed in all the gadgets that we don't see beyond them. It won't be the scary Terminator type invasion. It'll be, I think, much more subtle and much more civil in that we will accept it. We will recognize its value and we will incorporate that into our way of life, I think. So where do you see all of this going? If you were <laughs> to gaze into the crystal ball, what, what do you think the future holds for us? I, I in general, and historically, I've been uh, an optimist about technology. It all depends on how you use technology and how we kind of deploy it. We need uh, not only good kind of psychological adjustment, uh, but also good policies at all levels, uh, at institutional level, government level, you know, societal level as well. And I think the future is basically a future of collaboration. I love your optimism and the idea that it's all about finding the right balance between us and technology. Sham, thank you so much for joining us today. This is terrific. Thank you. And look forward to, you know, learning more about your work, but come back and visit us again. Thank you so much, Prabhu. It's been a pleasure. Life Meet Tech is presented by WKAR in association with the College of Communication Arts and Sciences at Michigan State University. Executive producer, Melanie Paul, audio engineer Drew Hill, and hosted by me, Prabhu David. Special thanks to my guest, Sham Sundar. Please subscribe wherever you're listening right now and don't miss an episode. And I'll see you next time on Life Meet Tech.